This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Well, welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century, and we are continuing talking to our potential uh, SBC presidents, to our candidates for SBC president. We've interviewed Tom Askell already, and today uh, we'll interview Bart. Uh, Barbara, Bart, thanks for being on the podcast. Hey, thanks for inviting me over, Nate. Of course, good to finally talk with you. Probably should have had you on the podcast well before now to talk uh, Baptist history stuff, and maybe we'll do that again in the future. Uh, just was hearing a little bit about your dissertation. Uh, awesome. before, we, before we jump in, we 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 are having our annual Baptist Twenty One panel at the SBC. It's going to be a little different this year. It'll be in the morning rather than lunch. So it'll be right before the beginning of the SBC sessions on Tuesday morning. Uh, Bart has agreed to be on there. Tom Askell as well has agreed to be on there. My my dad Danny Aiken, Al Moeller, and Juan Sanchez. Uh, and there may be another panelist. We're we're just kind of thinking through that for now. Tickets are still available. Come to BaptistTwentyOne.com to find that or. Uh, kind of search on social media. You can find all that. There's still seats available. Interviewing all three candidates. And again, have with me today, uh, Barbara, I want to hear just briefly. uh, I'd love to just know kind of uh, how you came to know the Lord, uh, ministry training experience, and how you got to FBC Farmersville. Yeah. So uh, I attended a very small church in rural Northeast Arkansas. Um, Mom made sure I was there from the moment that I was born. And heard the gospel early, accepted Christ very early, uh, was not quite six, which I know is unusual. Uh, and and I'm careful, very careful about people that age who are trying to make a profession of faith. But it was the real deal for me. And um, then God called me to uh, preach when I was 11, uh, preached my first sermon when I was 15, uh, pastored a church when I was a senior in high school. Um, That's and amazing. Well, so it's Northeast Arkansas. I got a lot of I got a lot of pulpit supply experience uh, uh, during deer season. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, was, let's get this young kid over and let him let him preach while I go hunt. And uh, so I loved that. Um, and then I went to Baylor, hmm. uh, and then after Baylor, twice to Southwestern Seminary, uh, served churches all along the way. Uh, wound up at FBC Farmersville in 1999. Uh, I had uh, I'd actually pastored my home church uh, when my dad got cancer, passed away, and and our pastor from our home church went to the mission field in Zambia, and, um, and in fact you might know Mike McDaniel, 
and then um and and then wanted to come back and go to school again and so uh wound up coming to fbc farmersville been here 23 years now that's awesome both is amazing both you and uh, dr askell were preaching early um yeah. yeah and and it's wonderful to here um so you've made it from arkansas to texas uh and then have been there 23 years it's amazing let me I want to ask some fun questions. We ask all of our kind of uh, first time uh, guests, these kind of questions, we call it family feud to give you know the end of the bonus round, kind of answer as quick as you can. Uh, we'll ask you five or six questions. So first one is this favorite book. That's not the Bible. Wow. Favorite book. That's not the Bible. The Baptist way by Stan Norman. The last three have been Pilgrim's progress. Uh, we all know Bunyan was a little bit iffy on the, you know, membership and baptism. So yeah. you going with a, with a Baptist book. All right. Second question, favorite sports team. St. Louis Cardinals. St. Louis Cardinals. So are you a, are you a Razorback fan? No, actually. And that's a, um, that's a, that's a story if you've got time for hey, it. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. So my dad was a very accomplished guy when Around the time I was born, he was the controller of accounts at Arkansas State University, uh, ASU Red Wolves now, used to be the Indians. Uh, part of his job every year was to go to the state legislature and beg for money. And if the Razorbacks did well, they got whatever they wanted. And everybody else was left to fight over the scraps. And so he rooted every year for the Razorbacks not to do well to make his job easier. And that was sort of handed down. Uh, there's a small cadre of people in Northeast Arkansas who are ASU fans yeah. uh, who are not, it's not like the Auburn, Alabama thing, uh, right. you know, quite, but it's, but for a small group of people, uh, it sort of is. That's amazing. And they, we played Georgia, I'm a Georgia fan. We played Arkansas or state a couple of years ago. I think yeah. they had cancer and, um, I can't remember the whole backstory, but the, the fans were really uh, wonderful fans there at Arkansas yeah. state. All right. That leads to the next question. You're a Cardinal fan, but next question, favorite athlete of all time. Oh gosh. Uh, Stan Musial. Man. All right. Jordan or LeBron? Jordan. Yeah. Okay. That's, there is one right answer there. <laughs> All right. So this is, this is, you have to pick one. Um, and so it's, if, if it was left up to this contest for you to win as SBC president against Tom Askell and Robin Hadaway, uh, if it was up to a free throw shooting contest, an SBC trivia contest, a golf outing or an arm wrestling contest, you prevail as SBC president. SBC trivia. Uh, I've got a decent free throw too, but. Hey, Tom said that he, he said free throw shooting. So we might need to try to set that up in Anaheim. Maybe so. By the court. So, all right, let's, let's pivot to ask SBC president questions. Um, when first question is this kind of who is nominating you and why are you allowing your name to be nominated for SBC president? Matt Hensley is going to nominate me. He's a he's a friend and uh, actually recently has moved here. He's the associational mission strategist for Colin Baptist Association that we're part of. And he's the assistant preaching pastor on our staff here at FBC Farmersville. So um, I'm, I'm nominating. The short answer is because I came to the end of my stubbornness uh, because I, and I'm saying that to everybody. But it's the truth. I, I've, uh, I've been asked by people to do this before. I've always said no. Uh, there are both personal reasons and denominational reasons why I've said no. Uh, personal because my kids are teenagers. It's a uh, it's a it's a strange time to be doing something like that. Uh, also because 
Um, you know, I, I don't really have a large staff here at church to be managing things here. The, the, the presidency this year is going to be different if, if they're not new nominees, uh, because none of us really are in that situation. Um, but, um, also denominationally, um, I, I'll tell you, I've, I've been engaged in Southern Baptist life since 2006, um, sometimes in ways that were unhealthy, especially early on. Um, I, I still, I still believe most of the things that I believed back then, but it's just the way I conducted myself. Um, uh, there, there's some episodes I'm not proud of. I've felt a calling from God almost to some degree because I care about the SBC and to some degree is a kind of atonement really, uh, to, to spend the remainder of my life alongside my pastoral calling and other things that I'm doing, uh, trying in some way, large or small, uh, to make the SBC healthier, uh, to do to do good things, to improve our level of cooperation and uh and and the and the family dynamic also in the SBC. And um I was I was convinced, and this may still be true, we're about to find out maybe, uh, but I was convinced that really the best way to do that was not to hold any office. But just to be someone who um, you, you couldn't second guess everything I said, thinking, well, that's this political purpose or whatever else. But uh, you just kind of be try to be an honest arbitrator of things that are going on and try to encourage health in the SBC. Uh, but uh, enough people who were close enough to me kept making the appeal um, that I decided to pray about it again. And. Uh, came to the conclusion that uh, that maybe I was wrong, and maybe the best way to find out is an election, yeah. uh, and see um, you know if if God would have me try to accomplish that goal. But I'm taking that goal on no matter what. Yeah. But see whether the right place to accomplish that goal is by holding the gavel. Yeah, it, it is, at least seems to me. I've been kind of coming around to the SBC, I guess, right around 2006, maybe more like 2007, 2008, but. This seems to be the first year that I can recall there not being at least a kind of mega church, larger church um, candidate. Again, that would be if we don't have somebody else jump in. So it seems unique in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think you have to go way, way back. We had a layman, uh, you know, back in the in the 60s. But um, mm. but yeah, uh, it's 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 unique. It's, uh, it's unprecedented, I think. Yeah. Hey, since you're a historian, is there a, and this could be just from historical fascination, love to read them, or it could be theological influence, it doesn't matter, just answer however you want, but favorite SBC president? Going all the way back? Anyone? Oh, yeah, you have all the options, yeah. Do you have one that kind of sticks out or a couple? Even though I really disagree with him about two or three things, E.Y. Mullins, you have to you have to give a lot of credit to E.Y. Mullins, who um, served as president of Southern Seminary, uh, had a key role in drafting the Baptist Faith and Message in the 1925 version of a key role and and putting together the cooperative program and uh, and served as president and and did that in ways that really um, uh, serve as, as a pattern of, of kind of bring people together in the SBC, I think. All of those things, the cooperative program, the Baptist Faith and Message, all of those things were issue-settling, conflict-resolving 
moves that were taken and even his election to the presidency of Southern uh, in the right, you know, on the heels of the Whitsitt controversy. T.T. Uh, Eaton is is a candidate for this. Uh, uh, you have B.H. Carroll involved and a lot of strong personalities that are kind of jostling over the future of Southern. E.Y. Mullins swoops in from Massachusetts, of yeah. all places, and uh, and just had kind of a, a, a track record of when he was finished, Southern Baptists were together in a way that they really weren't when he started. It's interesting. Yeah. And I, I didn't know this. I, I went to Murray State University, but didn't realize until later that the kind of the the foundations of the cooperative program started at FBC Murray, um, which yeah. is fascinating. Um, I hear this question as as kind of intended because it's, it, I, you know, I, the, I'm not asking you to brag on yourself, but make what makes you kind of stand out as a candidate compared to the other two? Uh, you know, if you allow your name to be nominated, you're obviously um, there's there's reasons why you would say, hey, you should at least consider me. So what would be some of those reasons? Uh, well, I would say, uh, first of all, I think there are a lot of people who disagree with me on issues who are supportive of um, uh, of me taking this role on. And so I hope that says something about my agreeableness and um, willingness to not to compromise on what I believe and even willing to state what I believe but willing also to let somebody else say what they believe and 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 have a genuine curiosity about what that is and a, and a willingness to hear that and understand it uh, before debating it. Mm-hmm. I also think, although this is something that um, you know, we don't know all the contours of yet, uh, one of the major things that's coming for the SBC this year is the Sexual Abuse Task Force report. Um, and uh, that's going to be, those are waters we're going to be navigating uh, over the course of the next year, for sure. And um, so I think I've demonstrated two things that are both going to be important. Uh, the first one is that I'm all in on our doing the right thing by survivors. Uh, a, a couple of things that I've done that have demonstrated that up to this point, um, I, I've tried as a trustee to get Southwestern Seminary to revoke the degree of Mark Adderholt. Uh, who, uh, while he was a student at Southwestern, uh, was uh, involved in sexual abuse against Anne Marie Miller. Um, And, um, you know, that was admittedly, I'm not throwing any shade on my fellow trustees for deciding not to do that because uh, they had questions about whether that would be legally recognized and whether the accrediting agencies would feel good about that. I thought I made a good case for cases that had been close to that that served maybe as precedents to help make that okay. Uh, but but even I acknowledge that I was out on the cutting edge. I was asking the school to do something that had not ever been done before. Yeah. Um, and then, um, I, actually, I wrote a law that's now the law in Texas um, that, um, that says that churches cannot be uh, sued in civil court for disclosing information about allegations of abuse uh, to other churches or nonprofits. If somebody's uh, leaving your membership or your employee to go uh, work somewhere else. Uh, So, um, so I've I've cared about this issue uh, enough, enough to think creatively about it and, and try to do things that would make things better. Um, But then going alongside that also, I'm all in on Southern Baptist polity. I, I care about 
uh, our ecclesiology and our polity very much. And so, you know, if there are people who are concerned, we're going to get so committed to the um, the 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 addressing of these sex abuse problems that we're going to run rough roughshod over our ecclesiology. Well, I'm not the guy who's going to want to do that. And if there are people who are concerned, well, we're going to be so committed to the way we've always done things that we're not going to do anything about sexual abuse. Well, I'm not the guy who's going to do that either. And so, uh, you know, I think both of those things are kind of quirky, but I think it might be just the kind of quirky that we need at this moment in time, perhaps. That's helpful, brother. Let me ask a question. This will be a little bit of a mouthful, but take it however you kind of want to take it. So we do seem divided right now. Uh, maybe maybe less so than some people think, maybe more so than some people think. But how will you, as president, try to help us unite around the BFNM 2000 for the propagation of the gospel? Maybe even think through how will you help us, you talked about this a little bit already, disagree and even debate with charity without kind of demonizing the other side. And then in the context of that, what role does kind of theological triage and the BFNM 2000 play in yeah, what are the issues we should debate and even disagree on, but still be unified? And what are the issues we should divide over? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I do think that um, that the one thing that you've sort of hit, you've talked about the Baptist faith and message a couple of times. Uh, what's key about the Baptist faith and message um, is is not that it's you know carved on stone tablets by the finger of God and handed down to Moses. Uh, but the, it represents not only a set of theological truths, it represents the way that we decide what the things are that are going to be closely held and important among us. Um, here's what I think is happening right now that, that makes discourse difficult. Um, we're in the adolescence of figuring out how to handle social media. Uh, and so we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, here we are on a podcast. Uh, this kind of thing was not possible 15 years ago. Uh, the, the level of exposure, uh, here, I'm going to say something that's a mouthful. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm sick to death of doing these podcasts. I, I'm not taking offense to that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something like this every day, uh, you know, that, that you're getting on and talking about this stuff. The level of overexposure to uh, SBC potential nominees right now. Uh, is so much different from what things were, you know, when I was a younger man. And, um, and, and all of that's new. And I'm not even saying it's bad. I'm just saying we have to learn how to live with it rightly. Yeah. And, um, and, and we can have debates ad infinitum uh, in between our annual meetings. And you can look at Twitter and you can come up with a perception based upon how the algorithm in Twitter or Facebook has curated your feed. You can come up with a perception about what actual prevailing opinion is in the SBC that may not have any relationship whatsoever to actual prevailing opinion in the SBC. And so I think it's important to, um, to clarify um, when we think about accountability, transparency, things like that in the SBC, that our entities are actually accountable to the trustees and our trustees are actually, in a sense, accountable to not just every church in the SBC or not whoever's loudest on Twitter or not each individual person who comes along and says, by golly, I want answers and I'm not happy with the way things are being done at that entity. 
but instead to the messenger body of the SBC. And the Baptist Faith and Message has that going for it. It's the thing that we've all agreed on. It's the agreement we've been able to reach. Uh, the Baptist Faith and Message is not anybody's personal statement of faith. Everybody would write something slightly different from that. Right. If they were writing something just to represent their own views, I would. I'm sure you would, too. And yet, what it, what it represents is when we put Southern Baptists together in a room, we could agree on this. And um, so there's a, there's a process question there. And I, I think, you know, really it comes down to this. It's a part of pastoring a congregationally governed church, you know, which I've, which I've done and leaned into for a long time. Um, you learn that really your first step is to persuade everybody. And that's hard work. And, but it's got to be done. And you, you can't just, you know, throw a, throw a fit because uh, things weren't, because you didn't get things done the way you wanted them done while you were skipping the step of persuading everybody mm. that things needed to be done the way that they were done. Mm. And so, so I think there needs to be a, a calling back of everyone to a commitment to this process and to an understanding that the sequence is uh, figure out what you believe, seek to persuade other people, and then, you know, if if other people aren't persuaded, step back and evaluate what you're saying and see if maybe you've missed something or step back and evaluate why they're why they're not persuadable and how it is that you can. Maybe it's not that you need that you've missed something. Something's wrong with your view. Maybe you just haven't learned to articulate it well uh, or, or haven't haven't seen the aspects of it that are appealing to someone else. Uh, do that kind of work. And then, and then when it comes down to the end of things, if, if you're just in the minority in Southern Baptist life, uh, then you face the same decision that you face when you're in the minority at your church. You either look and say, you know what, we disagree about this. And I think you're wrong. Uh, but uh, we agree about enough things that we can continue to, to work together and to cooperate together. And so I'm going to do that. Or you say, um, you know, I'm at the point where I can't continue on. Uh, I hear people saying those kinds of things sometimes. You know, this is this this ele- if this election doesn't go right, this is the last straw. The SBC's lost, and it astounds me. Yeah, to hear people uh, place so little value on the things achieved during the conservative resurgence. To look yeah. and say, here's a denomination of churches. This family of churches are committed to biblical inerrancy, biblical sufficiency, uh, committed to uh, specific interpretations of what the Bible says that are Baptistic and are conservative in, in every place that we've planted a flag. We've planted it in a, in a strongly conservative, Baptistic place. And to look at that and say, but all of that's nothing, <laughs> Uh, and instead, what today's hot issue is, if that doesn't land right, then none of it's worthwhile. So I think theological triage um, is something that plays out not only, there's my summary of this big, long, rambling answer. Theological triage is something that plays out not only on the individual level, but it's also something that we have to do corporately as a family of churches and the SBC and the messenger body of the convention is where we do that. 
Yeah, brother, that's that's really that's really helpful. Um, you you did say a lot there, but it's it is helpful. Like I, it's funny. I had a guy reach out yesterday, just basically saying, "Do you think such and such could run for a certain office that's uh, going to be voted on in um, Anaheim?" And was basically the question was, "Is it too late?" And I said, "Man, I, nothing is too late." And I was like, even what you're saying about Twitter and even podcast, I would still guess that the majority of messengers do not have their minds made up when they get there. They may not even know who the candidates are when they get there because they're not engaged in these kind of things. And so I think that's well-received that that's well-received on a number of levels, not just SBC politics, but American politics and so forth that yeah. uh, Twitter can be an echo chamber where the extremes can get most of the, the press, but there's a lot of people in the middle saying, ah, I've got problems with both extremes. I find myself in the middle. Does anybody agree with me? And, and oftentimes Probably more people agree with you than, than you think agree with you. Um, let me let me pivot from there then and ask, you know, so one of the things and I want to remind listeners, like I, they, I said this with the interview with 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 Tom, there was a it, there was a panel discussion at FBC Keller. All three of these brothers were on there. I'm trying not to do as much overlap as possible. Uh, even there's questions that I would really want to ask about the sexual abuse task force, but sort of want to wait till that report comes out and yeah. then have more conversation. So having said that, I'll, let's let's pivot to a couple more questions. CRT has been a point of division uh, in the SBC. What are your thoughts on CRT? And even just the thought of there's a the, the influence of the culture on the SBC and, and is there a potential slide? Any concerns you have there? Uh, would love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is sponsored by 10 of those. If you're at the recent T4G conference, you probably went to the bookstore. It was run by 10 of those.com. They want to serve the local church by bringing the best books from across the publishers at super low prices to conferences and churches across America. So if you're involved in running a conference or perhaps you have a women's retreat coming up or a church anniversary weekend, invite 10 of those.com to provide a pop-up bookstore. There is no charge for them to come. They'll recommend resources and serve you really well, taking care of all the stock, the cash register, sales tax, etc. And they come for conferences and churches of 300 people or more. They can also help you if you're doing things online. They can provide you with a customized online bookstore for your church, and there's no charge for that either. Email their team to get your bookstore set up. That's sales.us at 10 Sales.us at 10 Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll try to take those in order. As yeah. far as critical race theory and intersectionality go, um, for I think that it's um, that, that it's that it's an issue I disagree with uh, critical race theory, and I think it's a very important issue for the four people in the SBC who bothered to figure out what it is. Uh, and and, I, and really, I mean, I, um, I I began to be concerned very early on about two things in this. Uh, first of all, that that a lot of people who were talking about critical race theory. When I didn't know what it was, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, in, in 2019, when uh, a resolution on critical race theory came before the SBC, uh, I thought critical race theory was my cousin Chowhound's opinion on the latest NASCAR event. I, I had I had no idea what critical race theory was. Um, and um, so, you know, I started, but everybody, was, everybody else seemed to know. <laughs> Everybody else seemed to know just what it was and exactly what they thought about it. And I thought, man, all right, pay attention. And so I started, so I started asking people around me who were really opining about it. So what is that? 
And everybody gave me a different answer. And so, you know, that that concerned me a little uh, to discover that. I, I eventually wound up putting a poll on on social media and asking people. Uh, I had 1,500 respondents, which is pretty good for a, a non-pollster putting a poll up on uh, on his feed. And um, so, anyway, I, I'm, I, I put that poll out, and what I discovered was, out of 1,500 people, only 63 said that they affirmed critical race theory. And then of them, like four of them said white people are racist just by on by virtue of being white. And I had friends of mine say that was what critical race theory was. And here were people who said they affirmed critical race theory. They didn't affirm that. Uh, Tom asked at the at the thing in Keller, well, do you think maybe people who don't know what critical race theory is have seen these ideas sort of furtively creep into their mind. They don't know what they are, but they're, but they've been shaped by those ideas. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's happened with some people. It's possible uh, that that's happened with some people, but the polling suggested that some of the opposite is going on, that there, there are people who are affirming critical race theory who don't agree with uh, some of the things that, that may be ideas that are in critical race theory. So I just, as, as I look at critical race theory, uh, I think the very first thing that has to happen is anybody talking about it has to start by saying, so what is it? What do you think it is? What do I think it is? So we know we're talking about the same thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I was encouraged to hear on another interview, Tom, saying, you know, maybe our differences aren't as great as they uh, as we think they are. Why don't we find out first before we have like World War Three over critical race theory in the SBC? Why don't we why don't we do make the effort at the beginning to define these terms and have conversations with people around carefully defined terms and just see what people think? Or maybe don't even bother with defining this label and just take the specific propositions mm -hmm. and discuss those and see uh, how many people there are who think one way or the other about it. Um, so. I've had people, um, I said this at the Foreman Keller, but I've had people tell me that if you even say, uh, you know what, uh, we, need to, we need to try to make sure that we've got good Hispanic representation on our committees, or we need to try to make sure that we have African-American representation uh, in our employees at the entities or, or whatever, to say, that's racist, that's critical race theory, and uh, I don't buy that. Uh, I, I think, as I've said before, I think it's the same thing that happens when you're at your church and you look and see uh, uh, groups of people or, or, or individuals in the church that are kind of on the fringes. You're afraid you're going to lose them. Uh, they agree with you doctrinally. They're believers. They've been converted. It's just that they hadn't connected. Mm -hmm. And a good pastor reaches out and says, well, let's, let's try to connect you. Uh, let's see what we can do to help you feel like you're a part here. And I think what's going on is no different than that. And it, and it needs to happen, not just along the lines of race, but uh, along a whole lot of other lines as well. Uh, what was the rest of the question? No, that, no, that was that was it. I mean, but I think maybe the, the, the further question would be, do you have concern about slide in the SBC? So, yeah. yeah OK, yeah, you did ask about that. Yeah. Yeah. So you put a point on that. Because always. Yeah. So one of the issues, I think I was actually trying to text with a friend the other day who, who works in a university. And I was kind of. 
you know, there's there's this kind of argument right now that the two things that we have to deal with are Christian nationalism on the one hand and then CRT on the other. And I was just asking, you know, in the students, what seems to be more of a concern, Christian nationalism or CRT? And he was like, you know, CRT because of its connection then to critical theory and to queer theory and some other things. Mm-hmm. Even just the idea of saying homosexuality is a sin is it. And this is an institution we, we understand do you have concerns of that kind of cultural wind influencing the SBC? And that, that would maybe be the tighter point on the question I was trying to ask. Completely. I, I think um, I've, I've tried to say this. I, vigilance is important uh, because the culture is rapidly moving away from us. And I think some of this, it depends on whether you're talking about people in the pulpit or people in the pews. Yep. Uh, I think um there's from what i see even among the younger generation of uh southern baptists who are training for ministry and going into our pulpits uh a, a strong commitment to biblical truth uh in so many of these areas but even in the most conservative churches in our convention in the pew you're going to find some ideas that are that are concerning um i think there there needs to be vigilance but I've also said uh, it's a myth if you think that if vigilance is good, hypervigilance must be better. Uh, that's that's not true. And and the difference I would place on those things is uh, just just in a couple of places. First of all, I think the best way to avoid drift with the culture is just to teach good biblical theology, even, even if and and then trust the theology. Uh, Trust the theology. I'll give a, an application example of that. I, I know there's been some discussion, especially after the Roe v. Wade leak and whatever else, uh, and, the, and, the, and the Democratic response to that, uh, that there have been some people who've said, you know what, really, if anybody in your church doesn't vote Republican, they ought to be disciplined out of your church. And I can't go there. Uh, but yeah. Because here's the thing. I think I think if you teach people biblical theology, anybody who holds to biblical theology as as the culture moves and as the political party moves, the Republican Party has moved to the left, too. Uh, You don't see a whole lot of Obergefell dissent among national Republicans right now. So, uh, So as political parties move, you're going to see the same kind of thing happen that happened in the 1970s and 1980s, where people that I knew who were Democrats for life, yellow dog Democrats, because uh, Mr. Lincoln won the war, uh, you know, basically, who under Ronald Reagan flipped on mass. There's an enormous shift uh, in voting patterns in the in the USA, and that's because people were committed to some ideas. And even though they had a loyalty to a political party that they were trying to hold on to, eventually the distance between that party and some ideas they cared about grew to be so large that the rubber band snapped yep. and they and they were gone. And so um, so I, I do think that we have to be vigilant, but I think it's hyper vigilant to start um, you know, taking some of these uh some of these extreme positions that don't really have good biblical warrant uh, to, to, to practice church discipline against somebody for how they voted or didn't vote or whatever else. 
Uh, it's really difficult to make a biblical case for that. Uh, and, and instead, I think what we do have is a sound biblical case to instruct people in, in sound doctrine. And sound doctrine will eventually lead to a sound position on, on these cultural issues that are around us. And I think we're doing a great job teaching sound doctrine, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and I had somebody you could complain, and it, it is so true that often from the floor of the SBC, nuance of any kind is almost thrown out the window because of soundbite, you know, and, and so forth. And so uh, I do, you know, the, the thought of us actually getting in a room, having conversations, uh, which is one of the reasons we're having a pretty diverse panel for the SBC is we want to have these conversations. I think I think both you and 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 Tom has said that on the podcast as well. I would obviously welcome more and more conversation. Uh, let me let me ask one more question in that vein, and then we'll maybe flip to some more specific uh, responsibilities you would have as president. But uh, you know, and I you may have spoke to this on social media. I may have seen it. I, I told uh, Pastor Tom yesterday that I've tried to stay off SBC Twitter for the most part recently, and I've been a lot happier. Um, <laughs> But in the in the in the thought of concern, um, you know, what what is your level of concern that that Saddleback is now ordaining women as pastors, this sort of trend of women preaching on Mother's Day and on Sundays and so forth? You know, that's something that, that people will say, hey, that that does not seem consistent with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. That is looking like a slide influenced by the culture. Uh, how would you respond to that? I think there is some slide that's happening there. Uh, I think um, so. Let me let me come back and kind of articulate my view on this. By the way, I've got an FAQ page that I put out that uh, that, that spells this out too. Um, Baptist faith and message one of FAQ pages. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the the Baptist faith and message uh, makes a gender limitation on an office. It says the the office of pastor uh, is limited. Uh, to men qualified by scripture. And um, I think the New Testament, in addition to making limitations by office, also makes limitations by function. Um, you know, it's not just husband and one wife. It's also, I, I don't permit a woman to, a woman to blank. And it gives, you know, a, a list of, uh, or it gives a description of, of activities that, um, that, that, are, that are off limits there. Uh, in both of those cases, I think part of the part of the difficulty that we have in SBC life is uh, that uh, even if you accept the wording of that in the Baptist faith and message, that limitation as to office, we disagree about what that office is. Mm. And I, that seems to me to be a fundamental ecclesiological question worth solving, uh, worth coming to some consensus on. I don't know exactly how we're going to do that. Part of what's happened to make this um, uh, a more pressing question has been uh, the success that like Nine Marks and other uh, organizations like that have had uh, in, in sort of pressing into the idea that um, there's, there's not just one pastor, elder, overseer in a church. Uh, a lot of people like me will look at the Baptist faith and message and say the office of pastor is not just talking about one person at your church. It's talking about uh, multiple people who could occupy an office at your church, and and the and, and I think that the I think the Baptist faith and message because that's not a new idea; it's just kind of a newly emphasized old idea. And uh, Baptist faith and message, uh, I think, from the beginning was worded in such a way that that could be the case. Um, 
but we need to we need to seek some clarity on that. I think we've had some churches in the SBC for which uh, for which pastor seemed to be kind of an arbitrary word that was thrown around, and I think some of the ways that we wound up with some of those um, with some of those positions was was because of that. Churches that looked and said, "Well, you know what? Uh, what does this word really mean?" And it comes with tax implications. And so let's let's ordain somebody and call them a pastor uh, in order to in order to help them not have to pay self-employment or help them not have to pay income tax in the same way that everybody else does. So I think I think it's helpful and healthy for the Southern Baptist Convention to take these words that are in our statement of faith and seek to achieve some clarity about exactly what a pastor is. I think this also applies to the functional debate. Because uh, part of what I say in the uh, FAQ is uh, that um, that that the function of, um, uh, of of preaching, teaching, prophecy, you have different statements about uh, about gender roles in the Bible uh, attributed to those different functions. Prophecy seems to be something that, uh, that men and women both are doing. Uh, teaching is something that is restricted. Um, which one of those things is happening at what moment in the weekly calendar of a church? Um, I think if we could come to better definitions about those things, who's a pastor, which things are happening on Sunday morning uh, or in a different venue, uh, we could move closer to an agreement that's probably not going to hold everybody within the SBC, but it probably hold a whole lot more of us if we didn't have this vagueness about, about these two ideas. With all that said, um, I, I think um, that, that Saddleback is an interesting case. Um, and you know, I, don't want to, I don't want to gratuitously throw shade here at all, uh, but um, you know, their approach to deacons has been a lot different from what um, uh, a normal, I think normal, uh, average Southern Baptist church would, uh, would approach the idea of deacons. I think uh, the, the, the practice of ecclesiology at Saddleback has for a long time been something that is an outlier uh, for what kind of the average Southern Baptist church might do. But, uh, you know, it's probably growing because Rick Warren has written a lot of books and has had you know, a lot of influence on the way that, that uh, at least when some sectors of, of Southern Baptist life have practiced church. Uh, my understanding is that they have a male only elder board at Saddleback, uh, but they're ordaining women as pastors. Um, it may be that some clarity and definition would help to to. To, to bridge some of that divide, uh, you know, to hear exactly what it is they think they're doing. But apart from that, the fact is the Baptist Faith and Message says the office of pastor is limited to men, is qualified by scripture. And they made a big deal in a press conference of we're ordaining women for the first time. It's a historic change in what's happening at Saddleback. Uh, I think that that's something that apart from some clarification on their part, uh, constitutes stepping away from what Southern Baptists believe. Uh, I think it's the kind of thing that the that the credentials committee should look at and and consider. Uh, I'd be supportive of of any church that says because I think that's a um, I think that's a bright line 
uh, conservative resurgence doctrine that was incorporated in the Baptist faith and message with the intent of saying we don't ordain women as pastors. Uh, I think we should disfellowship churches that say, hey, listen, no clarification required here. We believe that the office of pastor is not limited to men, and we're ordaining women to that. I think that's a point where part ways. One last thing. I know I, I sort of, uh, uh, Ben Cole said, I filibuster myself, and sometimes <laughs> that's true. Um, the triage thing, part of the reason why I think that this is important is I think when you develop situations within our family of churches where where there are walls built on sub-factions within our group that pastors can't move between and members can't move between, the clock's ticking until Southern Baptist Convention fractures. I think into those groups because that's what that's what keeps the there's there's a formal level of our gathering and then there's this informal reality underneath it and that informal reality is that we all feel like we kind of belong to the same thing all feel like we belong together and that is enhanced when members and pastors and people you know who are staff workers and whatever keep moving around between these between these churches and so we and so we have these connections where we say oh yeah i know this guy that you know and we went to seminary together or he served on our staff once upon a time you lose that and then it really becomes hard to keep the whole thing together and so ordaining women uh i'm concerned about that for that reason but it but it goes along with some other concerns uh i'm 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 concerned when i hear about churches who say you know, we're 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 really grilling people on their soteriology to make sure that nobody who comes anywhere close to being a Calvinist can come be on our staff. Because that's another one of those walls that just segregates off. But then also on the other side, every time a church comes and says we're going to adopt the 1689 instead of the Baptist faith, the message is our statement of faith. They're saying that 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 not just pastors, but members. <laughs> from other churches that affirm the Baptist faith and message that are part of this family of churches could not be a member of their church, could not be in leadership of their church. And it's not that I'm saying that these churches are autonomous. They can, they can believe and and set whatever they want as their statement of faith. I'm just, I'm just saying, I think it bodes poorly for our ability to maintain this, this cooperative relationship with one another when we have sectors within the convention that are that are fast and immutable mm. and across those divides uh, the gulf fix that no one can can move across um maybe it's a positive indication that you have uh uh tom askell and cbn people who are all uh you know kind of aligned with one another right now even though i really disagree with the with the points that they're trying to make Maybe it just shows that those gulfs aren't as fixed as they as they seem to be not that long ago and that we are able to move across some of those lines when we realign over new issues. Uh, but 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 ordaining women into the pastorate, I think, is a, is a gulf that we're not going to be seeing realignment around. I think for the health of our convention, uh, anything that changes pastoral qualifications and really sets a rift between churches over these things is a, is a, a, a very difficult obstacle for us to overcome and continue in cooperation. 
That's that's helpful. Uh, a couple more questions, and then you've given me enough time. I'll, we'll just kind of end on a couple, but you probably can't answer one of these. You're the chairman of the resolutions committee. I am. Yeah. What what can we expect in Anaheim? So um, I can tell you a couple of things. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to list out specific things people have submitted or anything like that, but um, just a couple of things. One, uh, I'm committed to trying to influence the, the committee. The committee's making the decisions, but I'm committed to trying to influence the committee not to bring out so many resolutions that we can't get them across the finish line. Um, and that's that's not ideological. It's just it's just wisdom. Um, in 2019, uh, I wasn't on the committee then, but the committee brought out too many resolutions right out of time. It's the, it's the clear desire of the messenger body to talk more about the resolutions. That's inescapable. There are more amendments, more comments. It's changed so much in the last 15 years. It's great. Yeah, the messenger body wants to engage in discussion. And, you know, we have to respect that. And so in 2019, running out of time, they said, let's bundle these resolutions together. That was not received well. Uh, people people felt like they're trying to railroad something through when I think they're really just trying to solve a time management problem. And um, so so in last year, in, in 2021, our approach was to say, okay, um, well, we don't... Um, we don't want to do that. We don't want to bundle. But now it's evident that what we thought was going to be enough time is not enough time. We're just going to have to leave. We're just going to have to abandon a resolution. We're just going to have to leave one without being presented. And then the press came along and started publishing articles about, well, why this one? And let's examine the, the what this what does this tell us about the Southern Baptist Convention, that this was the resolution that didn't go forward. Neither of those is what we want. So you can expect there to be fewer resolutions reported out in order to make sure that the messengers have the time that they need to converse about the resolutions that do come out. Uh, the, the second thing that I would say that you can expect is um, uh, we, we are absolutely going to be convinced, uh, committed to trying to bring out resolutions about which Southern Baptists can achieve consensus. Mm. Um, so, I think our resolutions process is important. Uh, I don't think our resolutions process is so important that it ought to be the lead story coming out every year out of the convention annual meeting. Are there too many other really important things that are going on? And so, um, so, so it's my desire for us to, because really the only value in a resolution is if it really represents the consensus of what Southern Baptists think. That's why we do this for yeah. Southern Baptists to say things that we have built consensus on. If there are matters that we need to speak to that we haven't built consensus on yet, goes back to what I said earlier, then you still have the job in front of you to persuade Southern Baptists about your point of view. And so, uh, so what we're gonna try to do is have first and foremost, I think most of the time the committee is trying to do this, to try to have first and foremost, uh, what, what we understand to be the expressed informed consensus of the messenger body and to keep the resolutions process tethered to that. That's helpful. One more, well, two more questions that we'll be, we'll get you out of here. The first one is this, if you were made Pope of the SBC, not president of the SBC, what's one thing you would change maybe about the convention as a whole, but one thing specific about the annual meeting? Okay. So, 
uh, I would change things so that we don't elect popes of the SBC. But I know that's not what you're after. So, yeah, I'm way too bad just for that. Um, so uh, about the SBC as a whole, I think I think we need independent training for our trustees, and I say that at, not strictly independent. There's obviously some in, institutional orientation of trustees that have to happen too. But just as somebody who served as a trustee, I think I would have been a better trustee in some ways uh, if I'd had uh, some independent orientation as a trustee on the way in. Uh, I know there are all sorts of problems to solve about who would do that, who would decide how to do that. Um, and 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 I, I get that. I think it's worth having the conversation to try to figure out a good way to do that. Uh, secondly, uh, you asked about the annual meeting, things that you change about the annual meeting. I already kind of hinted at this a few weeks ago in something that I uh, that I posted. It's way too hard for somebody to go to the microphone. I, we talk about how anybody can go to the microphone, and that's true. Anybody can go to the microphone and say anything. But there are logistical difficulties that come your way because every word you say comes back at you a second and a half later. And very erudite, intelligent people wind up sounding like a buffoon uh, because four words in, they can't talk. And uh, I, I, I just think that's a problem that can be solved. And, uh, and, and it exemplifies um, just a baseline conviction of mine that the meeting's about the messengers and that um, and that it's important to have uh, in your mind what it's like to, to just be a messenger who comes and has a concern, who wants to speak to something, be heard. Uh, so I'd change that, uh, whether by put, changing something about the audio, putting a monitor there in front of them so that they hear their words in a timely way. Or uh, I had a guy last year who knew, I mean, he had studied the business plan, everything. And he went to the mic and he got thrown off by it. And he texted me later. was like, I promise I know how to speak. <laughs> like it was, and I was like, yeah, I was like, man, what was happening? And it was, it was the feedback had, had thrown him off, which, man, I, yeah, I can't imagine that, especially if you're in front of all those people, you want to not have that kind of issue. So I've done it. I've done it when the pressure was on Yeah, and, um, and it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah. Mm. Uh, last question. I'm, I'm actually actually two, but we'll ask this one first. Is one I did, I forgot to ask you, but hopes for the future of the SBC. You know, I'm actually pretty optimistic. I know we've got issues right now. There's serious issues that we need to talk about and resolve. The reason I'm optimistic is not because I think we're not going to encounter issues, but because our process has proven to be so good at resolving these issues in the past. Uh, I, I mentioned you, you and I both talked about 2006, 2007, really leaning into SBC politics. A completely different set of questions and issues right now than it was then. We were all lathered up and hot under the collar about all those things in 2006, and they're gone now. And there's another set of things. And five years from now, we'll have something different. Uh, But my hope for the SBC is that we're able to that we're able to uh, to hold the line on the the doctrinal issues that matter to us that are being opposed in in society and i think we will be able to do that really do uh we may we may for a period of time lose some people in our culture but i think there are opportunities there but people are not being served well by what's happened to the family uh, in the wake of the sexual revolution i think there's a widespread discontent uh among among teenagers that they may not know 
that Christianity offers something better. And the more that we have things like sex abuse scandals, the less likely they are to know that Christianity offers something better. But I think that we can put ourselves in a position where we can say, hey, listen, how's that working for you? And here's what the God of the universe has said that uh, that really provides a great deal of contentment. And uh, so so I hope that we'll that we'll clean up some messes in our in our own backyard, get the house pretty, uh, some curb appeal on it. And that will continue to hold forth the, the light uh, in a darkening world. I think we can do that. And I hope that we will. The other thing that I hope and pray for is that we see a, a spiritual awakening in the Southern Baptist Convention that leads to uh, a new crop of people committed to serving as missionaries and pastors and leaders in their local churches. Uh, I think. Uh, the numbers read to me like we're getting to a point where people really leaning into the cooperative program. The finances are looking good. Uh, I worry that finances might be outstripping uh, the people that we have to go spend them and use them to do uh, the work of the Great Commission. And so we really need God to 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 move upon our churches in a way that not just gets people right with the Lord, but but gets people on the field uh, doing the work that we do as Southern Baptists. That's, that's helpful, brother. The, the one question I forgot to ask you in the family feud section, which would be really interesting given uh, when you started preaching, but what was the text for the first sermon you preached on a Sunday morning? So what was that text when you were 15 that you preached? Oh, I do not remember, and I thank God for that. And I I go back every once in a while to Northeast Arkansas and try to preach at churches to undo some of the heresy that may have been sown by teenage Bart as he went around preaching during those times, God have mercy on those first few years of, of preaching and the people who heard that from me. That's amazing. I uh, I think I asked that question to David Platt, either on this podcast or our Christ Center and Clear, and he, his first one was a youth uh, sermon where he did the Revelation passage, and he walked up there with water in his mouth and spit it out and said, this is what God <laughs> thinks about you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I praise God that I'm just old enough uh, that not everything was uh, was videotaped and placed on social media when I was younger. Uh, um, yeah, if anybody listening can find the sermon from 15-year-old Bar- Barber, Baptist 21 will post that on the podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've got no. siblings, so I'm worried now. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. Bart, uh, thank you so much for your time, brother. We'll be praying for you, praying for the convention uh, that's coming up in about a month now. And so, and maybe try to have you back on once the task force releases uh, their, the, the, you know, basically their proposal and so forth. And so that may not work out just with, with schedules, but we're hoping it will. So uh, yeah, brother, we're praying for you and thanks for being on. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, babbis21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.